Welcome to Dram Talk. Pour a dram, take a seat, and let's talk whiskey. I'm Brad. And I'm Daniel. Welcome to another episode of Dram Talk. It is definitely warming up here in the Southern Hemisphere, and we are keen to kick back with some easy drinking drams for today's episode. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's uh, going to be harder and harder to drink a Peter whiskey when the temps are hitting over 30 and creeping into 35, but we're still going to make an effort. Don't, don't you worry about that. Oh. Absolutely. We do not forget about peated whiskey at all. I feel like there are, there are certain circumstances where it does kind of satisfy or at least like work in um, conjunction with like the the barbecue notes. So there, there are, it does have a time and a place in summer. Yeah. Or even just a, a peated old fashioned. Can't go wrong. Oh, you really can't. That is so refreshing. I actually had one recently. I was playing around with some whiskey cocktails um, at home and yep. I mean, the old fashioned is just one that I have seemed to always have the ingredients for. Um, <laughs> yeah, likewise. Kind of, kind of intentionally, but also not intentionally. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. it, it's really good. But um, yeah, played around with a couple of others. I actually discovered a new whiskey cocktail. It's called a um, Kentucky Mule. Yep. So it's bourbon with lime juice, ginger beer, bitter mint, and some bitters. And Ooh, sounds good. They they do recommend drinking it out of a copper a copper mug, and it's actually bought some from Dan Murphy's because I so the story behind this was I went I was like looking up a bunch of whiskey cocktails because we had a really hot weekend and I was keen to try try a couple of different ones and went to yeah the local bottler to buy some ginger beer for it actually and the guy asked what I was having and I mentioned to him and he was like oh you need to drink that out of a copper glass and I was like oh okay sure and. That night I was wasn't gonna go out and hunting for one. Yeah. So the next day I actually did because I was like, it, it just stuck in the back of my mind. And I'm like, I need to I need to see if he's like talking shit or if there yeah. is <laughs> some yeah. truth to this. <laughs> and so I, I went out and I got a copper mug from Dan Murphy's, I actually sold them there. And it actually did make quite a difference. <laughs> I wonder why that is, but probably a chemical reaction or whatever i feel like it, it, it must have to do with like yeah also the fact that it's like a metal glass so that it just yeah, similar to like a so. cocktail shaker it cools it down so fast and it's also yeah there's like that coppery i don't know tang may not be the right word but put the glass to your mouth you did get that initially and then, then oh, i'm okay. sure there's maybe some science behind it but it was it was really good and something i'm definitely going to make for you sometime soon brad because i absolutely loved it yeah i'm keen what bourbon juice I used Woodford Reserve. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then I ran out of that because I, I really enjoyed it. So I made like, yeah. used two ounces of bourbon. So like, was that two shots? Like 60 mil? Yeah. It's like um, two shots. Yeah. Yeah. So I went through the what I had left of my Woodford Reserve, which I had been using for like ribs and other yep. bourbon based, like cooking ingredients and cocktails. And so the only thing, the, the closest I had was Archie Rose Rye, which actually did a quite decent job as well. Oh, nice. Like well, definitely not a bourbon, but. I'm, I'm definitely keen to get another bottle of Buffalo Trace. So when you come down and we make a couple cocktails, we'll get a bottle of Buffalo Trace. Maybe get another bottle of Elijah Craig can just kill my bottle as well. And then make a couple <laughs> Buffalo Mules. Not, not the barrel proof bottle, because that one was already a mission and a half to get. Oh. We're gonna, we still have to savor that for, <laughs> I'd say a couple months, if not years to come, to savor it a little bit more before, yeah. <laughs> before we have any you know any thoughts of killing that bottle um but yeah getting back on 
to what we've actually got in the glass. Like I said, you know, some of the perks of this new format we kind of stumbled upon was starting an episode with a dram and we've got something quite nice in the glass, something that I'm really actually quite fond of. And it is the Jura 10. Yeah, the Jura 10. Like we, we were fools for doing so many episodes without starting with a glass. Like yeah. what were we thinking? What were we thinking? Only took three seasons, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, pretty we're, 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 we're etching slightly towards some semblance of professionalism. Not not there yet, but... but yeah. Season we'll five, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but yeah, Jura. So it's a small island off the west coast of Scotland. And I feel like this this is a distillery that's been around for a while. I've always been interested in it, um, purely for the fact that like we both love the whiskey that comes from the Scottish islands. And yeah. It's one I had seen of quite a lot, and uh, I don't know. It's just it was one of those ones that was just like always on the list, but never, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Like it was yeah, like always 100%. there, but yeah. never actually like pulled the trigger on buying it. Their bottle shape is quite iconic, and I was like reading the back of the tin to this bottle recently, and apparently it is the bottle's designed specifically to be as sturdy as possible to handle like the rough seas that they had to traverse when they made it to the mainland. So I'm sure there was some R and D in that. Which <laughs> I was like, we're not, we're not trying it out lost. right now, are we? <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> you like drop the bottle and see if it breaks. I, no, no. Cool, cool, cool. I'm going to take their word for it <laughs> that this is one of the sturdiest shape. Now um, it's kind of like an hourglass shape, maybe like a little bit of a chunkier hourglass. Yeah. It's pretty unique. Pair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's the that's the law behind their unique bottle style, and I found that quite interesting. Yeah, and Jura uh, Ten here matured in American white oak bourbon barrels, and then finished in Oloroso sherry butts, and sitting at forty percent on the nose. I find this quite potent. Like for, for sitting at forty percent, it delivers like a lot of punch on the nose um, in terms of like oily earthy salty notes yeah like typical very... of what you'd expect from an island distillery yeah and i find it's like very crisp on the nose like it feels sharp yeah. on the nose and yeah. i love that and yeah combined with the salty nature i wouldn't say it's like super coastal or anything but definitely no. just more like yeah just salty minus the coastal nature with so no sea spray <laughs> uh, no yeah, iodine none of that, like just seaweedy brine yeah just straight salt and earth so a lot of chefs probably do love that, that nose, <laughs> but oh, can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, but I had some on the palate just before and it's actually quite sweet and inviting up front. I found, and then the, the dryness and the saltiness kind of comes more towards the back and it, it's very, very, I'd say delicate. It's not like, it, it's not Talisker. It's like when you're saying mm -hmm. like Island or whatever, it's not Talisker. So if, if you're thinking that when you're hearing what Daniel and I are talking about it, like there's that saltiness and it's mm -hmm. a bit dry and a bit oily, it, it's not that. Um, definitely not on the palate. Yeah, like Talisker greets you with like a punch on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. This one greets you with a with a handshake, at least a warm hug at most. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the finish, again, probably carries on that delicate nature where it's very sweet. Oh, actually, no, it's not very sweet, but it is like a light sweetness and then a little bit more saltiness coming through. But yeah, I'd say this finish is like short. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there is there is like a, a lingering warmth 
the subtle influence of the sherry, giving you like that baking spice or like Christmas spices warmth mm. kind of at the back of the throat. I would say overall, though, I am super impressed with this, considering it is sitting at 40%, like as low as you can get for a whiskey um, to still be called whiskey. But the the amount of, um, you know, pleasant aromas on the nose, the depth of flavor and the what you're left with on the finish, like I'm, I'm really quite happy with this one. Yeah, yeah. I, again, like I said, it's a dream that I have like and good fondness for because it's so inviting so easy to drink yeah it's just a nice combination of things that i love and then like i said combining at the price point that this enters the market at sitting around that i'd say typically we used to find these for like 70 dollars to 80 dollars mm-hmm. now it might be up now because we all know how whiskey prices are going at the moment a bit insane. <laughs> but you know yeah like i said considering where this sits at in the market and where it occupies it's a really solid dram. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so very impressed with it. Now, let's get on to some whiskey news. Cool, cool, cool. Now, I don't know who brought the piece of news last time or if we both brought a it piece of news. Me. It was, it was you, me, uh, but then you, you threw a piece on the end to make me feel bad. <laughs> All right, cool, cool, cool. Because I wasn't sure and I was like, hi, am I doubling up here? Or, <laughs> but whatever, I brought the piece of news this time around and it's a yeah, the Gold Star Journalism Award. For- <laughs> This month, Brad. <laughs> and it is, I'd say, probably a, a bit of a meaty article. So it's the only mm-hmm. piece of news we've brought, unless you've brought anything. You've brought, not brought anything? No? Rub right. it in. Cool, cool, cool. Rub it in. <laughs> cool. I'm just making sure. Just making sure we're all on the same page. Um, so, yeah, the article I found here, it was actually titled, um, Is Whiskey Tourism Turning Scotland into Disneyland? But is it a price worth paying? So some key things here, distilleries are on distilleries in Scotland. And at the start of the article, it was namely talking about Isla and Isla being this kind of new destination in whiskey. And it's saying, you know, the distilleries there are revamping and upping their visitor experiences within their sites. And namely Diageo reportedly spending up to 185 million pounds investing into Scottish whiskey tourism. So again, with one of the key things they're looking to do is with Port Ellen. So Port Ellen's currently undergoing a 35 million pound resurrection aimed squarely at the luxury market and more catering towards creating expensive experiences rather than traditional tours. So I don't know, maybe in a couple of years, we're going to start seeing Port Ellen, if not already, start to be kind of marketed as a more premium brand. And one that's maybe not so readily available on the shelves. And I don't know, even now, we're not really seeing as much Port Ellen as we used to see when Daniel, like when we got into whiskey, like you're not really seeing it as much anymore. So, yeah, because like if I if I remember rightly, I feel like Port Ellen had held the the place of just like being the main malting floor for a lot of the distilleries on Isla. Um, And they weren't too interested in bottling anything under their own kind of distillery or label. Yeah, going on, then it mentions, you know, between Port Ellen and Ardbeg, the road that takes you past Laphroaig, Lagavulin has a new bar, and Kilcoman, they've massively upped production, and the once cosy farm home is now transformed into a large operation with a new sparkly visitor center. 
Yeah, interesting. I've just done um, a quick yeah. <laughs> a quick Google search for Port Ellen. So um, it was opened or it was founded at least in 1825 and then it closed in 1983. So it's status is still technically currently closed yeah um it is being rebuilt they, they are like scheduled to open in 2023 however we, we're kind of reaching the end of 2023 so <laughs> i feel like a lot of what this is talking about is like this ongoing project to to reopen yeah. port yeah. ellen to have it like functioning and operating as a like working distillery producing spirit and releasing that yeah yeah it's so strange because I, I swear i'd seen like a couple of bottles when we were like initially kind of coming into whiskey kind of on the shelf um and then they must yeah. have just been independent bottles um that we'd seen yeah stuff that's been floating around since like since, like because like they may have closed but like like many places you yeah. hear like they just shut their doors but all the casks are still there yeah some of them just keep aging especially if it's still like if it's closed but still owned yeah they, that can either be casks sold off to independent bottlers, diverted to to blends, or released for under other projects by the distillery itself. But there, there is definitely talk of bottles that have been floating around from yeah from Port Allen. Next thing here in the article, they're talking about upping production. Like I mentioned with Kilcoman, they've massively upped production. But then the next one was mentioning Ardbeg. They've essentially doubled their capacity, so they've got two new stills, and of course, that's probably thanks to their owners, right? Their owners definitely have super deep pockets being Moe, mm-hmm. Hennessy and Louis Vuitton. So I'm sure there's no shortage of money they are can they, dump into Ardbeg. Are they, are they big brands? They big I don't brands? know. I'm, I'm not sure if they're big brands or not, but no, yeah, there's, there's no shortage of funds that they have there to kind of prop Ardbeg up. And it's obviously, you can kind of see with the ability with which that they are able to create special releases and experiment and the extent at which they do compared to the other distilleries on Isla, it's very mm. clear that I would say funding wise and where the money's going isn't as hamstrung as maybe the other distilleries on Isla. And again, yeah. the other distilleries on Isla, like I know Diageo and everything, but when you think of Diageo, are they funneling as much money in the extent of allowing Lagavulin, for example, or Talisker, for example, to do these different bottlings and special releases, not to that extent, right? It's more so if you're doing a special release, you're doing it for the Diageo special release and that's what you're doing it for. Um, but no, don't get me wrong. There's a great. A facial, but yeah, or, or for facial. Yeah. There's that as well. And yeah, going on, you know, the number of 70 CL bottles, so 700 mil bottles exported grew by more than 20%. And that's obviously due to the growth coming from China, India, and Taiwan. And yeah, probably just throw Australia in there as well. Um, we're probably <laughs> subsidizing the whole, <laughs> a good portion of the whiskey purchasing industry here, but then yeah, alongside other strong figures in traditional markets such as France and Germany. So yeah, production is upping and s- stills are firing nonstop, trying to churn whiskey out to kind of keep on top of this Disneyfication of whiskey. Um, so yeah, and that almost like a perfect segue into my next kind of thing here. And again, like I mentioned, Disneyfication. So essentially just a commercial transformation of things or environments into something more simplified, controlled, and safe, aka or a la Disney. Yeah. So again, it's more like looking at it now where it's this idea of 
scotch and whiskey in general being a bit more controlled or maybe consistent across different brands? Like what effect is that going to have on product? And then with it being more controlled, more simplified, technically means it's more accessible to people. Yeah. So that means more people are coming in than like the snowball effect of that is the effect that it has on infrastructure. And then you think of maybe not so much the mainland, but when you're thinking of the islands and Isla, for example, how does that impact? Because these islands have very small populations. Mm-hmm. So, and then you're having what, like tens of thousands of tourists essentially larger than the population of the island coming and just visiting. Yeah. And it's like, what is that doing to the infrastructure? How do they keep up? How do they maintain that? And again, that kind of rolls into the next thing here where it's Scotland as a whole being a part of the uh, Commonwealth part of the UK. Namely, it's just the constitutional agreements and arrangements that they have where it's the billions of pounds that the Scotch industry creates that gets then sent to the UK exchequer, but then, and then it gets redistributed throughout the United Kingdom. So then it's not necessarily like they are seeing all the profits of something that's essentially being produced in Scotland, something that can only be produced there, that being Scotch. But then it's like the funds they get back. It's not like, okay, cool. You get these funds back and then you're able to redistribute it back into the industry. No, these are your funds for your country to use. And then you think of Scotland as like a natural environment where it's almost, if not more than 10% of Europe's coastline, they're not a hundred inhabited islands as well. Then it's like, you have to maintain that. So then it's just showing, you know, where is this income going and how much of it is actually going back into the actual industry that's generating that income. So it's, it's like almost like a snowball effect where it's, all right, cool. We're getting all these people, all these eyes onto whiskey. More people are drinking whiskey and scotch than ever. Then we don't have the infrastructure to support all the, to- all the benefits of it, like tourism, all the tourism yeah. coming, which is what's going to generate a whole new stream of income where it's like the local economy with like the bars, the different little hotels and everything benefiting from that it just becomes, yeah, just a whole snowball of things where it's, how do you keep up? Yeah, that's that's really tricky because, you know, as you were saying, like this money may not be directly going to them. So if they have yeah. to then fork out additional funds to to revamp or um, readjust what they've got available to handle this sheer amount of tourism, then it's kind of like a double-edged sword for them because, you know, when has funds been... When the funds ever been actually, like, representatively distributed equally to the parts that actually um yeah that actually need it contributed to it the most yeah that actually yeah. need it the most like i feel like that's just there's there's a lot of space for this to to cause like you know these kind of negative externalities on the the smallest distilleries like you know you take i mean i say small in infrastructure definitely not in like name or stature like look at Springbank. Like, yeah tiny distillery um if you were to like see the actual building of it but their name, like, they, they have so much weight and their bottles sell out insanely fast, even in Scotland itself. Yep. Like, this isn't, like, unique to 
international countries that import it. It's like the actual um, normal like retailers of whiskey. Like they really struggle with <laughs> holding on to stock of these things. So yeah, like you know, how much of this actually makes it to these people to the, so they can adjust and what they're operating with to cater to the sheer amount of influx of tourism they're going to be receiving. Yeah. And I think as well, like when you talk about like that redistribution of funds, it's almost like a short sightedness as well, where it's, mm. Hey, don't you think if we had better infrastructure, we could probably get, you know, wouldn't it be better if we could get more ferries to go to Isla and then get better roads that we can have more cars on the road, which would then generate more income which would then allow us to then distribute more money back. You know, you're not yeah. necessarily thinking like, oh, okay, well, if we actually fund this, we can actually help generate more like income coming from it because we can then cater for more individuals that are coming to Isla because yeah, Isla is not an easy place to get to. Yes. And I mean, like this is in no way to excuse like, or at least like justify not allocating funds to these particular distilleries in Isla, but there is a certain element of, um, I don't know, like um, quaintness to Isla that is probably part of its appeal. And if you kind of increase the infrastructure um, too far, then it's going to become a little bit true. It's going to lose maybe that, that um, a little bit of the romance. Yeah. The romance that's often like cast upon the yeah. the quaintness of it and yeah. you know to to some degree maybe the the small amount of ferries going to isla actually help them because it does restrict the amount of people that can actually make it to the place in one day yeah, um, yeah potentially but again as i said like this is in no way to to discount the um or at least justify not providing the funds that are like um, garnered from increase in tourism to yeah. the distilleries that are actually like driving it the most. Yeah. And, you know, the article does go on and mention, you know, a lot of the bigger players on Isla, like Ardbeg, for example, they've contributed like up to a million pounds right, w- towards the surrounding yeah. community to help build up infrastructure, you know, the roads to the distillery, get better roads, get better transport mm-hmm. to and from. And like I said, yeah, the surrounding communities so that they can support the more, you know, the larger amount of tourism they are generating for its surrounds, which again, that's great to see like Ardbeg, you know, noticing and realizing that, Hey, we're a big reason for this. We need to actually help support it because in turn, you know, if we're able to support it, then again, like I said, it's like a flow on effect. You help support it. You help build it up. You're then going to reap the rewards of it in the long run. So it's just maybe short-term pain, long-term gain. And yeah, yeah, you understand that. That's great. Um, but then going on as well, you can then kind of look at it like a, through a lens of like history as well, where it's you should definitely be supporting the industry now while it has this boom because you have like living example with Campbelltown where mm-hmm. they had upwards of 30 distilleries, which has essentially been cut down to maybe you can count on your hands how many distilleries are operating currently in Campbelltown. Yeah. And again, it's great to see them bouncing back because the distilleries in Campbelltown now are quality. And, but yeah, like Campbelltown was a burgeoning industry, if not probably the biggest producers of scotch at one point in time. Mm -hmm. And then to have that essentially just completely hamstrung 
and then to like essentially a fall from grace really because I was looking up and I was saying, you know, Campbelltown was generating almost as much income as London. Yeah. England, right? So it's just like to have that essentially completely decimated. It's, yeah, it's a scary thought. And it's something that definitely they should look at and go, hey, we actually have proof of if we don't look to either take advantage of this to help sustain it and continue its growth or make it actually sustainable and not something that's just going to go up in flames in a bunch of years and then a whole bunch of distillers are going to have to close because we've spoken about this before. It's just definitely here in Australia where it's almost like a new distillery is opening like every other week. Mm -hmm. And then in Scotland, we're, we're starting to see that in Scotland now, maybe not to the same frequency, but we're definitely seeing more distilleries come up and we're seeing new bottles from distilleries that we've never heard of before. And we're like, when were these guys a distillery? And then yep. it's, and the fact that it's starting to happen in Scotland shows that the industry is definitely booming and people are looking to get in on it and build a name for themselves. And it's, yeah, it's just maybe like a error with a side of caution because you don't want to end up having what happened to Campbelltown happen to two or three regions because that could essentially just decimate Scotch like almost irreparably. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Um, but then, yeah, wrapping up the article there, it's saying the, the main thing though, is that the sentiment for the most part is very, very positive for the, for, uh, you know, for the large portions of the community, they were all very, I guess, excited by the fact that something that is essentially just water, barley and yeast is able to just generate that much tourism and that much interest in Scotland as a whole. And then, you know, people come to Scotland, they don't just come to see distilleries. I mean, for the most part we do, but yes. other <laughs> yeah. people will go, they'll see a couple of distilleries that they love their choice distilleries. Then, you know, you'll go to the Isle of Man, you'll go to store, you'll go and see all these different things that there are in Scotland, which there are hundreds of. So again, you're helping boost tourism as a whole, not just whiskey tourism. Um, and with one of the main distillers here um, on Isla from Ardbeg, uh, he'd gone and said that mostly for all the distillers here, the spirit remains paramount. So the quality of the spirit is still the most important thing and that everyone should just take note that these are the good times for whiskey and we shouldn't you know, look at it with disdain or anything like that. And I thought that article ended on a great uh, quote where it's just when whiskey tourism is done well and on the whole, it is done well, it benefits everyone, which is true. Like at the end of the day, if, you know, we don't go to these distilleries and we don't get to speak to distillers, we don't have as much insight into the production of whiskey, then we don't have anything to talk about on the pod and the pod stops. <laughs> And then Daniel yeah, and I, yeah. and they talk about whiskey uh, back with um, our partners and then they get annoyed at us and then we end up sitting in a room quietly talking um, <laughs> because we have no one else to talk to. But yeah, you know, I thought it was a super interesting article um, and one that, you know, maybe helped, like I said, put a bit of caution on everything that's happening in Scotch as a whole. It maybe shine a light on it and go, hey, this is like a really good period of 
scotch and it's been going on for a long time now but we just kind of need to be beware or be we just need to be aware and take caution that that bubble doesn't burst because if it bursts i feel like it's not just one region that's going to be affected because of how much has been invested by a lot of these distilleries into laying down casks and creating these special releases which the whiskey community love <laughs> but you know it's just yeah a lot is invested into the spirit and it it would be a shame to see the industry and especially an industry that we both really really love that essentially just pop or blow up <laughs> yeah i mean my overall thoughts on this article have been i mean a couple of things one this disneyfication of whiskey tourism i think it really depends what form it takes mm-hmm. because looking at like i remember when i went to scotland in 2019 um and i had been previously in 2011 yeah and one of the things i noted was that when you go to distilleries you've got like the distillery tour and then or the distillery tour and tasting and for the most part like that was all that was really on offer in terms of like touring like you could go and visit each of them, but yep. there was only there was a very limited amount of what you could actually do at each distillery. And if you've been on a distillery tour, like each distillery obviously does things slightly differently and they've got their own unique twist on things or their own different style or process. But unless you're like super into it, it's not really gonna have that much of an impact in altering your overall experience. Yeah. And to a certain degree it's like how many distilleries do you want to see and do you want to do a distillery tour on each one where they have to cater it to someone who like in terms of like how it's delivered to an audience you obviously need to deliver it to an audience under the assumption that you're speaking to people who have never been on a distillery tour before because if you assume that other people have then you're alienating certain members of your audience who could be getting into whiskey for the first time so i can understand like the difficulty there and why each distillery itself may be offering a distillery tour but in terms of like actual experiences that it was very limited from from the ones i went to and so seeing that you know this allows distilleries to branch out and do other things like you mentioned lagavulin's new bar um or offering like revamping your your venue or your cellar door to draw in crowd or to make it appealing to people who may not be there to go on a distillery tour, but make it actual place worth like an actual attraction to go to and see. Yeah. That's really cool. And I mean, like obviously um downplaying it because anyone who's been to Scotland knows how picturesque a lot of the the whiskey trails are and the distilleries themselves. Um like with their kind of like the pagoda type roofs, like it just, it look like they look amazing. And some of them are like worth photo destinations, but to, to relate this back to my experience, like I remember going to the Scotch whiskey experience in Edinburgh, which I mean, it fits well, well within this Disneyfication because you enter this distillery, they give you like, you almost get on a ride. Like you're sitting in a barrel yeah. and it takes you through like a virtual tour of a distillery. And then you go through a guided um, tour of Scotland's whiskey regions. And then you get a tasting of all the different regions. So it was a really good way to get that kind of overall picture. Then that way, when I went to other distilleries, I could just focus on checking out like 
the setting, the type of buildings, maybe the type of stills, if they were visible to see without having to actually go on a tour. I mean, I did go on, at least I've been on a couple of distillery tours, but this is kind of yeah. to my point, like they were all tours where they walk you through the process, which, I mean, if you reduce it down to bare bones, is going to be somewhat the same across all of them because they all start with barley and they all end with whiskey. Yeah. And there is only so much variation you can do within that that process to get... um that same end result. So I can understand like the benefits of this um, in terms of being able to provide more experiences and allowing individual distilleries to branch out and try different things to draw in tourists. But just to go back to your last point, which was that kind of almost like a warning to like the industry about like not wanting it to go bust. Like there was, I'm probably going to, be a little nerdy so apologies if this is going to bore anyone but i was an economist um i think it was milton Keynes. i think it was in the 40s where his basic theory was on like you know when times are good you save and then when times are bad you spend and this does seem counterintuitive but the idea was like while things are good and while you've got a steady income that's when you save so that when times are bad you have that money to put into things that can help get you through those bad times and to, to this extent, like, this is, I suppose, is where my um, minor alarm bells start going off, where it's like, should the distilleries be putting so much money into it now, especially if they're doing so well, as opposed to, like, if you're doing well, you're obviously doing something right. So just yep. keep doing that and then just build your nest egg. And that way, if things happen to make a turn and it would be better to have a solid yeah, nest egg to be sitting on that yeah. you can then use to get you through those times, if it should make a turn now because obviously it just can't keep growing forever (laughs) there were my thoughts on it i thought it was a really interesting article and um do really appreciate you bringing it because i thought that was like quite some interesting and really cool points going on there cool cool cool. definitely earned that gold star for journalism sweet you did (laughs) (laughs) so let's actually pivot into our first actual dram or the evening And we're back. We've got our second dram. Did I say second? I mean first dram of the episode. Who can keep track anymore? <laughs> Can't even keep oh, track we should, anymore. We should say when we were planning this episode out, we we picked the Jura, but we weren't 100% sure whether we had done this on an episode before. And we're like, you know, at this point, we're going to have accidental repeats. Like some of them we've actually noted as a revisit, but we you... If you're listening and you're like, I swear they've done this dram before. Like, I mean, just see it as an opportunity to see how our palettes have changed over time. <laughs> but yes, going back to the actual dram, one of the actual drams <laughs> of the episode, it is the Cardu 15-year-old sitting at 40% finished in American oak casks. So now Cardu, we've done a Cardu before, probably one of the special releases. Yeah, it would have been the one of the rare by natures. I'm pretty yeah. sure we did it alongside a Crag and Moor. So this is the first, I suppose, core range from Cardu that we're experiencing on yeah. the pod. This is one that I actually probably haven't touched, like revisited in about a year or two. So actually probably probably more than two years, actually. So been a while yeah, since been a I've while. gotten into this one. Yeah. yeah, it's been a while since I've um, tried this. Even just like thinking of the nose, it, very fragrant, almost like perfumey. 
to me it's, it's there's like a slight like orchard fruit element to it as yep. well so i feel like i'm walking through the orchards when the trees are in like bloom judging off the nose i'm very curious if this is just oak and then if it is which bourbon casks they've used because that would be essentially what's driving the nose and the palate a little more because I'm getting a bit of spice as well on the nose. And that leads me to think, is there a sherry cask in here somewhere? But that's not stated anywhere. Yeah. Um, so sorry, while you're talking, I've gone to the palate. My initial notes, like what I would term as smooth, like it's quite cooling, quite smooth. I think it also delivers like a kick of spice. And to your point, I have a feeling this spice probably comes from the oak casks itself, as opposed to something that's imparted from a sherry cask. Yeah. Now, I think there is a, there is a slight like honeyed fruitiness to it, but because it's playing with the spice, what I'm getting is more like a toffeed apple, not so much in the like intensity of the flavor, but just in the general vibe from it. Like you're getting that like crisp, white flesh fruit like apple or pear but then you're almost getting like that bitter bite of a toffee and the finish as i mentioned it comes quite dry and i think that i'm attributing that to like the oaky spice and how that spice comes across i'm thinking um yeah bitter pepper but i mean i say bitter but like I think there is just like an element of coolness all throughout this. Like, I just feel like it's very fresh and very cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I've got. Yeah, you feel most of what I'm getting here. Yeah, I can definitely see there's like a freshness to this dram. And with the orchard fruits, more so for me, I can definitely pinpoint and go, yeah, that's a pear. And there is a very slight spiced characteristic here. And the finish again, a bit longer than the Jura, but still short. But it finishes quite dry, almost like a white wine, which I mean, I would agree I, with that. I think that's a pretty nice kind of finish when you get that in whiskey sometimes. And I do quite enjoy it. Again, another very easy drinking dram. Yeah, I think that's that's a theme for all the ones in this episode, which are all sitting at 40%. Like they're going to be a relatively easy approachable one. Um, just how, it pres- how the spirit presents itself at this level is really going to determine people's enjoyments. Yeah, it. the Disneyfication of dram talk. Absolutely. <laughs> We're appealing to mass audiences now, so buckle yep. up. <laughs> but my only, I say, like, borderline criticism of this is this um, smooth or cool note that we've mentioned quite a lot. I think that, like, you could almost label that as watered down. And yeah. while I don't think that makes it necessarily like a bad dram, it just probably keeps it, like below what we're we like you and me are used to and more comfortable with yeah i'm more enjoyment from yeah yeah i think like how i kind of want to describe it um and it's 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 not negative um i want to caveat that like it's not negative yeah but i think it feels very manufactured Mm -hmm. like in the sense that it's very just it's like we need to give this note, this note, and this note. We need to make sure it's easy to drink. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what they were given as like a kind of brief. It's and like a just whiskey, made sure, like- Yeah. And they've just made sure they've hit every single one of those. And that's what this is. There's no rough edges. But yeah, you know, look, at the end of the day, I'm not mad at it. <laughs> no. And it, like it has, its, it definitely has its place. 
And, and that's the thing. Like, it's a yeah. whiskey that's gone through, like, market research. Like, it's one yeah. of those ones where it's like, okay, this is what we found people enjoy. So this is what we've made sure it delivers. And it does that. So, yeah, you're, you're right in that, like, you can't be mad at it. It just, yeah. it, it's there and it does what it's meant to be, what it's meant to do. You have, you have um, distilleries or whiskeys from distilleries that are unapologetically themselves. Um, whereas this one is unapologetically catered to a wider audience yeah like if you want to get a sense of who cardu are yeah go get a special release get a cast strength version of cardu it's really good stuff but yeah again like i said i'm not mad at the cardu 15 i quite like it very easy to drink um and again like for me i'm never mad at a dram that's easy to drink yeah no <laughs> every once in a while it's nice to just pick up a dram, just like today, we picked up two drams, super easy to unpack, and it's just like cool, just like the good old days, um, yeah. <laughs> just like the good old days. Um, but yeah, no, definitely not mad at it. And who's th this whiskey for? I mean, I'd say the Cardio Fifteen. <laughs> kind yeah, of. It, it's just for everyone, right? I can definitely see myself leading a tasting night. With my friends that don't drink whiskey a lot, with the Cardi 15 going, hey, you, and on top of that, you know, you're, imagine that you're leading a tasting night with a 15 year old whiskey. Yeah. You're going to knock people's people socks off right away. They're, they're going to be super <laughs> impressed just by the, that fact in itself. So, yeah, you know, definitely for everyone, for the new whiskey drinker, for maybe even someone that doesn't really like drinking whiskey, you could probably get them on board with this. Now, let's move on to our second or third I, I i don't i don't know what what our numbering systems turned into anymore so <laughs> our next whiskey or our should i should say our last whiskey for this evening is the glenlivet master distillers reserve small batch whiskey like all the others we've had tonight it's at 40 percent, and it was originally released for the travel retail market so this is made with specially selected casks including first fill x cherry casks first fill american oak casks and traditional oak casks so this is almost kind of unintentionally done a really good job of tying in our previous two whiskeys together when we're talking about X Sherry, American Oak, and Oak. So what do you mean? It's just perfect episode planning. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like this is what happened when you solidly dedicate research into your episode prep. This is what happens when you have a gold star journalist writing episode <laughs> scripts. <laughs> This is what happens. How do this, we afford you, Brad? This doesn't happen by chance when we're slowly reading out the notes as we're recording. Um, <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. But no, the nose on this one, and this is where I kind of got to give some props to Glenlivet. More complex than the two drams we've had thus far this evening. Yeah, um, absolutely. I would agree there. I think looking at the notes and then kind of like what I'm feeling from it, I'm getting like Jaffa lollies. So we're talking like chocolate and orange. Yeah. There's also like a um a slightly like sharper citrus note to it that I get from like marmalade as well. Yeah. Or like orange peel, like the kind of orange peel you like garnish an old fashioned with. Yeah. No, that's what I was going to say. I was like that orange note, it's so sharp and it's so distinct. And like, I love marmalade. And that's exactly what it yep. is. <laughs> Such a great note. And then the chocolatey note that I'm getting, it's very dark chocolate. 
And again, okay, yeah. I love that. I love that as well. And then it's like you said, it's a it's almost like a perfect marriage of the two whiskies we had before. It feels like very good cask selection here. Yeah, absolutely. And on the palate, I would say there's a lot more substance to it coming directly off the cardio. There's a lot more substance to it. It feels a lot fuller, a lot juicier. Yeah. Yep. Getting a bit more sweetness from it. So, you know, while you mentioned the nose was challenging, I feel like the palate up front is very pleasant. And it's not until like closer towards a finish that some of those like oak spices or like sharp mm. citrus or bitter chocolate notes actually start to present themselves. Yeah. And the finish on this one, I'm a happy boy. I'd say medium to long. <laughs> medium to long. Yeah, I'd probably put it in a medium finish, but I, yeah. I, I can see I can see where you're coming from though. <laughs> I like when my whiskey stays on the palate for a little bit. Because then you can kind of unpack it a little more as it kind of sits there and you kind of pick up smaller nuances that there are there. And at the front, you get that little bit of like orange and citrus. So then you think, oh, this is pretty welcoming. And then you just get walloped with like that bourbon spice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's and exactly it almost what it feels is. like yeah. it's the bourbon spice combined with sherry spice. And this almost feels as spice forward as some of the spicier bourbons are. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'd agree with that. How I said I wasn't mad with the Gardu, Cardu, <laughs> I'm back to being happy with the, You're a happy boy. <laughs> with the Glenfiddich. Yeah, I'm a happy boy. Yeah. See, like, my thing is, like, I would say in terms of, like, who this dram is for, it's for specific types of people. Like, if I was to give a whiskey to someone who I knew loved, like, orange chocolate or loved strong tea or loved red wine there's enough here that I think would really appeal to those flavor palettes that I'd be quite comfortable giving them this whiskey and have them enjoy it. Yeah. I feel like this is one of those 40%, you know, underdogs that we have where it's just like one of those drums that still deliver such a great experience at 40%. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely offers a lot more than I was expecting, especially looking at the 40% yeah. mark. And these have just shown that, like, you know, 40% whiskeys can hold their weight as well. Like, don't don't sleep on them. Yeah, this one is so much more, like, up my alley, where it's just, like, all the things, like, I love in a dram, that sharp marmalade, and then even, mm -hmm. like, leading into an orange and citrus characteristic, and then a bit of spice. All it's missing is that really faint smoke. Yeah. Oh. Because if, if it had, had that, if, like, if it just had God that damn. faint smoke, like in the background, like a certain distillery that has a fourteen-year-old, <laughs> then honestly, this would be such a like. It would just elevate like even more. It's like such a great dream. No, absolutely, and I think that's that's probably yeah, perfect place to wrap this up. Yeah, I think so. All our listeners out there, you know, you can reach out to us at dramtalk.au at gmail.com or you can slide into the DMs on Instagram at dramtalkpodcast. You know, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're listening on Spotify, I think with Spotify, you can throw in the Q&A what you thought about the episode and we'll be able to respond there. Yes. And something else I would just want to tack on at the end, because I'm aware that our release schedule, this is going to come out 
towards the end of November. Um, in our last episode, we did talk about the Meekle tour that were just being released, and we said it was going to be months before we'd probably see that on the pod. Um, good news, I've got a bottle. So I won't tell you which one it is, but I think we'll try and get it on as soon as possible. It was it didn't work out to, for today's episode, but hopefully for next episode, we'll have it on the pod. So you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? Could be December or did I hear bonus episode? Who knows? As always, our glasses may be empty, but we hope yours aren't. And if they are, pour another dram! dram!